It is Resurrection Sunday, the day that millions of people around the world recognize something more than Easter eggs and, yes, even chocolate and bunnies and things like that. We celebrate, we celebrate the fact that Jesus has risen from the grave. We celebrate the fact that Jesus wasn't resuscitated or brought back to life. He was made new in a fantastic new body that had this strange continuity with the old body, but it was wonderfully other and had superpowers. Pretty amazing. And followers of Jesus throughout the centuries have seen the resurrection of Jesus as some sort of prototype for what our resurrection will be like someday. Continuity, physicality, but also so much more. And the resurrection, the, uh, when that happens for us, we're promised bodies that aren't going to break down to disease or to death. And possibly even better than that is the fact that our minds and our emotions, our psychology will be put right so that we no longer have the propensity toward fear and selfishness and greed or the evils that come when we are even, like selfish and greedy and fearful. The good news of Jesus' resurrection was never just a way of thinking like it was a metaphor for some deeper meaning. The great apostle Paul himself said that if Jesus wasn't actually bodily raised from the dead, then everyone who claims to follow Jesus is to be pitied because there's nothing glamorous or particularly noble about being a Christian. In fact, our hope is in nothing less than the historic resurrection of Jesus. The bodily resurrection of Jesus was witnessed by hundreds of people. It rattled the local power structure of the empire, and it impacted people so much that many changed their entire way of life for nearly 2,000 years now. It's the resurrection that continues to, to, to change individuals and communities and entire civilizations. And I love preaching about the resurrection because it's good news. It's death-defeating, new creation beginning, future hope-securing, life-transforming good news. And usually, on Easter, I preach from one of those four gospel texts, much like the one that Justin just read, that wonderful text from John 20. Other times, I'll, I'll draw from that wonderful theological reflection of 1 Corinthians 15. But today, I want to do something a little different and just consider this question. This is one that's been rattling around in my mind as preparation for Easter. How does the resurrection of Jesus play out in our lives as we actually experience our lives? Like beyond just a concept or some good news declaration, how does it actually play out? Why does it actually matter? Now for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, it's easy to let the same old good news of, of the resurrection um, just become the same old, same old. Like in one ear and out the other. And, and it's very easy when that happens to begin to pay more attention to the way the world really works. You know my, my air quotes there, right? We all know how the world really works. And so we discount sometimes the resurrection and its impact on real life. And if you're visiting today, maybe you're here and you're just checking out Jesus because it's Easter, or you're with a family member, well, there's something here to do, uh, to say as, to you as well. And you, you might just listen and say like, what do these Christians think? 
Why does this matter? Why does it matter that some guy, a Jewish guy who was crucified 2,000 years ago, what does it matter if he rose from the grave? It just so happens that there's a man named Paul who had his life transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. And he writes all about it. This guy, Paul, was skeptical about Jesus. He doubted that Jesus was God's chosen one. And he denied that Jesus had risen from the grave. This man, Paul, was a passionate follower of God. And he was furious when the early Christians were daring not only to preach the resurrection of Jesus, but to actually worship him on par with Yahweh, with God. As the story goes, Paul is actually on his way to persecute a community of Christians when the risen Jesus encounters him in person. And Paul's life was forever changed. It turns out that Jesus didn't condemn Paul, but he showed him grace, and he actually enlisted Paul to become an apostle or a herald or a messenger of the good news to other people. And from then on, Paul employed all of his passion, all of his intellect, and he began to spread the good news that God had come to earth and the person of Jesus in order to rescue all people and all creation. He preached a message of God's faithfulness to his promise to redeem the world through one person, as the prophets often alluded to. And Paul said, you know who that person is? It's Jesus. I met him. He's alive. And through trust in Jesus, all could come to have a transformed life and an eternal life in the future. Anyway, one of the communities that Paul preached to was a community in the city of Corinth, which is in the south of Greece, and I bring this all up because there are a lot of similarities to 21st century Bellingham and 1st century Corinth. The people in Corinth, uh, the place of Corinth actually, uh, was settled by hardworking entrepreneurial colonists. Much like Bellingham was once settled by a bunch of rowdy loggers and miners and fisher people and millers, Right? Uh, and it, these people who colonized Corinth were immensely practical. They didn't have old money, right? They weren't like the East Coast. <laughs> they, they didn't have old money. They didn't have old traditions. They were fiercely independent and proud. Does that sound anything like where we live? And, and, and these early colonists who were independent and proud and hardworking, they, they developed uh, wealth, they got land, and they passed that along to their descendants for generations. And those descendants became well-educated, really into entertainment, and to sports, and to playing, right? mountain biking, hiking, you know, like, it's, it's like us, it's like our generation now, right? So uh, some of these Corinthians responded with eagerness to the gospel that Paul was preaching, the gospel of Jesus, but it didn't take long for the influence of their culture to kind of press back against the gospel of Jesus. And they begin to think about it and say, our world, our culture exalts the strong, the well-spoken, the beautiful, and Jesus was a homeless Jew who was crucified at the hands of the Romans, not the sort of hero we're proud of and Paul, the messenger who brought us Jesus, he has an unimpressive speaking style. And he apparently had an unimpressive appearance, too. There's some allusions to that in Scripture. 
And most of all, Paul had an unimpressive lifestyle. He didn't receive money oftentimes when he taught, and he was often beaten, skipped meals because he was poor oftentimes. I mean, Paul's lifestyle was not one you wanted to emulate. And these people in Corinth wanted a flashier gospel, a more appealing message. If it were in today's parlance, maybe, they would want a better brand, right? Something classy, but not over the top, city of subdued excitement. They would want a website that communicated success and victory and strength and power. And so many of these followers of Jesus in Corinth began to teach a different gospel than Paul. They downplayed the part about Jesus dying on a cross, a disgraceful death, and they spoke in circles, wide circles, around the resurrection of the body, and they turned it into, well, you know, that was just a spiritual, metaphorical message. And most of all, they downplayed the importance of Paul as a messenger, because to them, he wasn't good-looking enough, he didn't use fancy rhetoric like their pop philosophers and he wasn't popular enough. Our text this evening addresses this church, the Corinthian church in crisis, a church that deals with many of the same cultural issues that we deal with. And I just want to remind you as I begin to read this text that this is a letter from Paul written to a church of people he already knows who already claim to follow Jesus. I say that because he's very direct in this letter. And in other places where he's being evangelistic, he's much more nuanced. But these people already know him, and here's how the story begins. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through 16. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good things or bad things. Since then, we know what the fear of the Lord is. We try and persuade other people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to you also and plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is unseen, what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, hey, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view though we once looked at Christ in a worldly point of view, but now we don't any longer. Let me just break that down. Paul reminds this church who wants a fancier gospel and a slicker preacher and a better website, <laughs> than that website of their fundamental need. We all have to give an account to God. And this reality makes Paul's focus in life, sharing the good news, like that's, that's what he's on about. Human beings are glorious creatures made in the image of God, but except for a few bright moments in each generation, we tend to, to be in direct rebellion against God, like more often than not. 
We choose to look out for ourselves more often than not than for other people. And the scriptures are consistently clear that God is merciful and he is just and he will not let injustice go because, because it is often aimed at the weak and the oppressed. To illustrate this concept so that the Corinthians could get it in their minds, he uses this word judgment seat, that they will all come before the judgment seat of God. In Greek, it's this word named bima. And and I just want to to give you a visual. Torin's going to put a visual of uh, first century Corinth on the screen. And if you were coming into Corinth, you would come from the bottom of the screen there, down that main road. Uh, Way on the far right is a theater. The little theater just on top of that one is is, um, uh, an Odeon, and that's where people would sing. It's a smaller venue. But moving back to the bottom of the screen and the left, you see that main road that goes into town. Everyone coming into Corinth would go down that main road, and on the sides of that road would be uh, like shops and, and, and agoras and third spaces where people would congregate and sell their wares, but then they would come in to that main square, the forum, and that's where the government buildings were, uh, the people in power were, and that's where the bima was the judgment seat. In fact, uh, go ahead and go to the next picture, Torin. Uh, this is the one in Corinth that's not really there anymore, but you would come into that square and you can almost see a placard in the middle of that wall. Uh, that's where the bima was. And here's what happens, is that's where the governor would come out and he would hear people's cases and grievances and he would make judgments. He would judge for you or against you depending on the evidence and, and these kinds of things. And, and, and so Paul's audience would resonate with that image of a judgment seat. And it, it didn't matter what brand, uh, what brand your gospel is or your religion is or how flashy or wealthy you are because when it comes to the judgment seat, everybody knew it was just you and the governor. In a world where we're always drawn to the new thing, the flashy, trendy look, or the sound, or the feeling, it's easy to dismiss the stunningly simple yet profound reality of God. Corey and I were on a date one time. It must have been a Friday or a Saturday night. Um, We were at a semi-decent restaurant, and about a dozen teenagers came in, all paired up, and uh, it must have been a prom or a homecoming because they were all done up in their fancy uh, outfits, and we observed that, like, Six boys sitting over here, six girls over there, and all the boys were on their smartphones. And here, sitting across from them, probably spent hours on their makeup and their hair, and I know for my own girls, like, how long it takes to pick out a dang dress. Like, they, they were done up in all of their glory, and these, these kids were so dumbly, like, distracted by the simple, flashy, latest thing on whatever they were looking at, other than the glory across from them. The Corinthians valued rhetoric and public debates. And in those sort of contests, it didn't so much matter what the people were talking about. As long as they had slick turns of phrase and were good looking and could convince each other of their arguments. Persuasion was so important to the Greeks that that persuasion itself was deified. The name of the goddess was uh, patho. It's where we get the word pithy, like a pithy phrase or a pithy turn of phrase or a persuasion. So it was actually a deified concept. 
And Paul could see that the Corinthians were in danger because they were turning away from the message of simple forgiveness in Jesus because they didn't like his perceived weakness. And they were beginning to resent Paul, his messenger, right? They resented Paul because he wasn't flashy. He didn't use flowery rhetorical arguments like the entertainers did. They wanted a stronger, more popular hero. And there's two reasons why rejecting Jesus and Paul for a stronger, more worldly hero is dangerous. First reason, a stronger, more worldly hero inherently eliminates the non-articulate, the non-wealthy, the non-socially connected, the non-worldly people, right? It becomes a club of social elites, a group destined, designed to exclude, which is the opposite of the love of God. Jesus came, think about this, he came in the form of a baby, utterly vulnerable and approachable. He taught in ways that our highest ethical standards uh, still look up to in the Sermon on the Mount, and yet in a way that related to farmers and fishermen, as well as the educated and the powerful. Jesus was nonviolent and self-sacrificial, which takes much greater strength than it does to point your finger and destroy stuff. A flashier, more worldly Jesus might be someone who would make a better brand, but it would be a brand that you and I couldn't afford. Second, seeking a slick and flashy gospel here is dangerous because it's not true. Paul is recognized by most scholars as a genius. He could have gone toe-to-toe with the best orators of the day, but he didn't want to present Jesus in a way that people placed their faith in Paul and his abilities rather than Jesus. Paul wanted to minimize external expressions or competence uh, or popularity. Paul even had certain charisms in the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues and, and doing some miraculous things, but he downplayed that side of his personal life so that Jesus would be exalted, so that people wouldn't look up to him because he was flashy or could do some cool tricks. Rather, Paul wanted the message of the crucified and resurrected Jesus to go out in a way that was substantial and real. Paul wanted the love of Christ to be the fuel for the gospel, not outward spiritual gifts of Christ or trending popularity of his message. Do you remember that judgment seat we looked at a moment ago? The one that all the Corinthians would know about? Paul wasn't just talking about a metaphor to describe uh, an account we're gonna have to give before God. Paul was actually at that judgment seat under the Roman uh, governor Gallio, uh, and, and it takes place in the book of Acts chapter 18. We can read all about it in that passage where Paul first comes to Corinth when, and he's accused, and this is ironic, he's accused of persuading people, the very thing the Corinthians said he wasn't good at, um, uh, persuading people to worship God in a way that didn't fit the customs and practices of the locals. He was brought before the judgment seat and his companion, Sosthenes, who was there, was beaten by the crowds. And Paul was so often beaten on his journeys. Paul's love, his bravery, his commitment to sharing the way of salvation, even at the risk of his own life, that was the rhetoric of the gospel he was interested in. Professional orators do it for fame and money. 
They don't even have to believe what they're saying, but Paul was willing to risk his life and reputation to tell the truth about the reality of judgment and the grace of God available through Jesus. Paul's method of persuasion was by telling the blunt truth and then living it out in his actions. And the truth is, is that we're all really in trouble. There will really be a reckoning. If not in front of a judgment seat like the one in Corinth, that metaphor is still like there's truth to it. But the good news, as Paul himself says in this passage in verse 15, is that Jesus died for all people so that judgment that we might be liable for uh, on the judgment seat falls on him. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, he included everyone in his death so that everyone could be included in his life, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. And here we get to the center of Paul's good news argument, picking up the story in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united to the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, the new life burgeons. Look at it. Now all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed uh, to us the, the, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. (laughs) We beg everyone on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Paul may not use flashy rhetoric or techniques of persuasion, but the guy's grounded in reality. He pierces our outer defenses, our facade of distraction and entertainment, uh, our always seeking after the next feel-good moment, and he gets our attention by reminding us of what is substantial. There is a God who created us, and he loves us, a God who imbues us with incredible dignity and will call us to give an account of how we use the life that he's given us. And the truth is, what Paul is saying is that every single one of us will be found wanting right? We'll be found guilty. We'll be found full of regrets and disappointment at our false pride. But the, that's only one side of the truth. Now he has our attention, right? He's got our attention. Paul then reminds us of a greater reality than the judgment seat, that the God who sits on that judgment seat loves us. And he loves us so much that he became human while he never sinned. He took on the sin of the world, Bearing our sin and shame, he died for us in our place, on our behalf, and in the person of Jesus, God buried our sin and shame forever. Why do we celebrate Easter? Why does it matter? Because Jesus broke free of the grave. He conquered death. He rose to new life. And he shows us that death is dead, it does not have the last word. And sin is dealt with, and it doesn't have to own us, and Jesus reconciles us to God. And here's the crazy thing is, I mean, this is is gospel right here. Pay attention to this. Paul presents all of this as a done deal, as a fact 
Paul is an ambassador of Christ, and ambassadors carry the full authority of the one who sent them. When Paul speaks for Christ, he speaks as Christ. When Paul says that all sin was placed on the sinless Jesus so that he might be our righteousness, that we might be rightly related to God, that's what Jesus is saying. And the great news is that you don't have to do anything for that to have happened. You don't have to have perfect faith. You don't have to be free of all of your doubts. Paul is speaking as an ambassador of Jesus, and so that's the way it is. You don't have to believe in gravity to experience its effect. If you don't have eyesight, you don't have to see the sun to feel its rays on your face and let it warm you, right? So the death and resurrection of Jesus has started a new creation, a new era. And you might still be working out, do I believe this? Can I trust that? I'm here to tell you, it sort of doesn't matter. Like it's in play right now. And this is how it matters for us in our context or in any context that humans find themselves. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone places their trust in Jesus, they are a new creation. They will begin to see the old ways where we live by fear and death and judgment are no longer helpful to us because in Christ we're forgiven. We're freed up to love without strings attached, to serve without need for recognition and reciprocation, to invest in the lives of other people just because they're made in God's image, and that's a good thing. The resurrection changes everything. And that's why Paul gives this final charge when he writes in the sixth chapter, first two verses. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, For he says, in this time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of my salvation, I helped you. And Paul says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of of, of salvation. Let's respond. Lord, we thank you for this message of good news passed down through your servant, Paul. We thank you for what you've done, for making a way for us, for having accomplished the possibility of new life. Thank you that your grace, your resurrection, your canceling of our sin and death is not dependent on our faith. It's not dependent on our behavior. It's not dependent on our rationally having all the dots connected but you do call us to respond and to trust you as as we are able. And so, Lord, we come to you now with the shreds of faith we might have, praying for more, more belief, more trust. And, Lord, we want to experience more of your life, more of your love flowing through our veins, animating our bodies, affecting our will so that our will is aligned with your will. Thank you, Jesus, that you want these things too. Amen.